You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I've never seen scandal after scandal hit a company in such a short amount of time. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We don't really know what's in e-cigarettes. California has unfortunately led the nation in officer-involved killings. This is KCBS In-Depth. The screech of the BART train. The din of restaurant conversations. The rumble pop of rock concerts. We take all these noises for granted. It's just the soundtrack of modern life, after all. But whether we notice it or not, little by little, all these sounds add up, eventually taking a toll on our hearing and our health. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today, we're going to take a look at what emerging science has to tell us about the risks of our ever-loudening world, and also what can be done to help protect us. Our guest today is New Yorker staff writer David Owen. His new book is Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. David Owen, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hello, thank you. So I think one thing that your book does a good job of is helping us understand what exactly is changing here, because I think that it can be easy to look around and say, well, you know, people have been dealing with loud noises for a long time. You just kind of, that's a part of life. What's the big deal? But you point out that the level of noise that we're dealing with today really hasn't been around that long, really just since the Industrial Revolution. And in a lot of ways, we're not really evolved for the level of noise we're dealing with today. Uh, no, we're definitely not. We evolved in a very different sound environment, uh, you know, thunderstorms, crashing waves, things like that. Uh, the probably the the first occupational sufferers of hearing loss were people who, who banged on metal, tinsmiths and ringers of church bells, and people who worked on uh, boilermakers who worked on the the boilers that ran the steam engines that ran the the industrial revolution, uh, and it and it's gotten louder since. I mean, right now in my part of the country, this is leaf blower season, so pretty much. Uh, every day from seven or eight in the morning until dark, you hear these two-stroke gasoline engine leaf blowers going constantly. And when you walk past them, they're seriously loud. And the science of hearing loss also goes back a ways. But perhaps in a lot of ways, the seriousness that we take hearing loss has not gone back as as far as it should. Tell me a little bit about how our attitudes, uh, at least uh, in the you know the professional sphere, the people that are, are trying to keep track of this, how has had that been changing? Are, are we getting more serious about the problem of hearing loss? Uh, we are getting more serious, and I think it's it's partly because there's this this big aging uh, bump in the in the population. The baby boomer generation are now in their prime hearing loss years, and so there are lots of medical researchers and uh, startups and companies and university departments who are working on uh, both finding ways to reverse hearing loss, which nobody has really figured out how to do yet uh, with the kinds that are that af- that afflict most people. One of the difficulties is that 
we, for reasons that I don't know that I really understand, we tend to, we, we don't take our hearing very seriously by comparison with other senses. And I remember, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my, on sleepovers, my friends and I would say, you know, would you rather be, you know, hanged or guillotined, frozen to death or burned to death, uh, deaf or blind? And everyone always would go, oh, deaf, of course. Uh, but it's not as obvious a choice as we thought it was. And you know, Helen Keller, for example, who was both deaf and blind from uh, from toddlerhood, uh, she didn't hesitate to say that deafness was the worst affliction. Uh, we underestimate how important it is in our lives and what its loss uh, means to us. And one of the pretty striking illustrations of that is. Uh, I, I have limited hearing loss myself, and I struggle at times to hear people at loud dinner parties. And it, it can be pretty alienating to be in a room with a lot of other people and miss the entire thread of the conversation. And that just gets worse as the hearing loss progresses. It definitely it gets worse as we get older. And, and people tend to think, I think young people tend to think, oh, hearing loss is a problem of, of older people. But it's a problem of older people that begins in youth. It's the things that we do to our ears begin when we're young. And often the worst things we do to our ears are things that we do when we're young. I know that the the, the most damage I've done to my own ears began when I was, you know, my friends and I, we always sat in the front row at rock concerts. We, we always wanted to be in, in, right in front of the speakers. I used to lie on the floor in my bedroom. I had these big JBL speakers and I would tip them together over my head and crank uh, Steppenwolf as loud as I could. And I think of all the lawnmowers and and power tools and uh, that I used without any kind of hearing protection, and uh, to me, it's 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 more it's amazing that I can hear anything at all, uh, given given all of that. It's this extraordinary extraordinary sense, and we don't take enough care of it. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons we don't is that we just don't appreciate how how important it is in our lives. Mm. And just so we know where we're at at this point. Are, are things still getting louder? Have, have we already maxed out how loud things can be, or are we still getting louder year by year? <laughs> I don't know. We, see, we seem to be pretty good at thinking of new loud things to do. You know, in some ways, people are more aware of the, the threat that loud sounds play to their ears. You, you're much more likely to see... You know, when I pass a lawn crew uh, cutting the grass up the street, they're much more likely to be wearing some kind of hearing protection than they would have been uh, even five or ten years ago. At the same time, there are many, many more uh, threats to hearing, and ones that we don't really necessarily identify as threats. Uh, you know, I was just watching an NFL game uh, on TV over the weekend, and the comment commentators were talking about how loud the fans were uh, that the and they even had a decibel level and, and the level of the sound inside that stadium it wasn't just uh, high enough to make it hard for linemen to hear the signals from their quarterback it was loud enough to actually do permanent hearing damage to the people sitting in the stadium it's all around us the there's I spent some time with a, a group in Paris that studies the effect of sound on on people in metropolitan Paris and they had made they have a, a a kind of a network of sensors around the city and they had overlaid data from world health organization uh studies and show were able to show that people living in 
transportation corridors, along busy streets, uh, under flight paths, along rail lines, had suffered significant health effects, elevated blood pressure, higher rates of heart attack, higher rates of diabetes, lower birth rate in infants, uh, sleeping problems, concentration problems at work, uh, all of these uh, leading to reduced life expectancy just because they lived in a, a noisier environment. And one of the really difficult things about this sort of affliction, the affliction of loud noises, is it takes a lot of time to manifest. You don't you don't walk home from that loud concert. Maybe you have a ringing in your ears, but you don't know at that moment what the long-term consequences of that is going to be. No, and it's always been assumed that you know when your ears felt better after a couple of days, that, that it showed that you, no damage had been done. Increasingly, the scientists believe that we do do permanent damage at levels that used to be considered harmless, and that just the mere fact that your hearing goes back to it feels like normal after a couple of days does not mean that you have not done uh, permanent damage at the nerve level in your inner ear. Once again, that's that that can't be repaired. Um, this, this has a name. It's been given a name of hidden hearing loss, but a, a better name for it might just be hearing loss. The the thinking increasingly uh, is that hearing loss begins with these little tiny uh, breaks in in neural connections. Then. The, the, the don't show up in hearing tests. You can lose uh, up to 80% of these connections before it begins to show up, before it shows up in the kind of hearing test that an audiologist gives you. So uh, it's worth being careful with hers. I now carry, um, on my keychain, I have a pair of musician's earplugs. They're uh, two little, they look like little nesting uh, silicone umbrellas uh, attached together by a string, and I stick them in my ears if I walk uh, you know, if there's a if there's a uh, fire truck stuck in traffic right next to me where I am on the sidewalk, uh, I'll stick them in so that I don't deafen myself just by standing there. All right. So we're touching on the practical advice portion of this interview, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more in just a moment. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. That's our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, well, it is a noisy world out there. So what is all that noise doing to our health and to our ears? We're getting some answers from writer David Owen, whose new book is Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. And to bring some more news and current events into this conversation, one thing that is changing is our ability to correct some of the hearing problems that people are are getting. Uh, As you've indicated, the sense of hearing is a lot more complicated than uh, people probably uh, understand in general, and so the corrections for hearing problems are also also extremely complicated and have taken a lot of research. Tell us what there is to say about the emerging science of uh, uh, ear surgeries and ear uh, hearing aids. Uh, what what what's coming out in the last couple of years that uh, is helping people hear better? Well, in in terms of uh, medical interventions, the, for the for the most con- common kind of of acquired hearing loss, so-called sensoroneural hearing loss, which is when you damage the sensors that pick up the vibration, sound waves, and then the nerves that they connect to that carry those signals to the brain. Uh, scientists still don't know how to, to reverse that kind of damage. They're getting closer. Uh, there are lots of uh, university researchers and private researchers and companies and uh, that are working on it, and they have the confidence that within some number of years, they'll be able to, there will actually be medical treatments for the kind of hearing loss that's now considered hopeless. 
in terms of, of uh, you know, aids, hearing aids, uh, uh, and other devices, the technology is is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, as anybody who who has shopped for hearing aids knows, they're incredibly expensive. They tend not to be covered by uh, insurance. Uh, and that's partly for that reason that people who uh, begin to notice hearing problems, uh, on average, people delay 10 years after they've noticed a hearing problem in themselves before they contact uh, any kind of medical professional about you know, do, doing some, potentially doing something about it. And then uh, a common situation that occurs when people do get hearing aids, uh, they get fed up with them uh, almost immediately. They throw them in a drawer and they, never, they don't use them again. One reason is that people's expectations for hearing aids are not necessarily realistic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really nearsighted. When I put my glasses on, I can see perfectly. Hearing aids don't work the same way. If you have destroyed the part of your inner ear that responds to a particular range of frequencies, there's nothing that a hearing aid can do to bring that back. What's, if it's gone, it's gone. What hearing aids do is they make quiet sounds louder. They can add uh, gain. They can add increase the volume in ranges where uh, hearing has been damaged but not fully lost. Uh, they can make a, a huge difference, but they, they take getting used to, and people have to um, they have to adjust their expect, expectations to uh, to what they'll they'll actually do. It's not like glasses, right? And I think that for a lot of people hearing this, you would think, you know, hearing aids, we're, we're good at amplifying sound. We've been able to do that for uh, more than half a century now. We're pretty good at that. What would be so complicated about amplifying sound in the ear? But your book demonstrates that there's a lot of things that make it complicated. There's the fact that you're, you need something that can stay in the ear for long periods of time. You need something really small. And then you also need something that's taking into account all the different frequencies uh, that people might have hearing loss. So uh, how far have we gotten in terms of this technology? Well, the, the technology is, is really mind-boggling. The, what, what hearing aid manufacturers are able to cram into these tiny, tiny, tiny little things, uh, you know, there are hearing aids that are smaller than candy corns. They disappear into the ear. Uh, you wonder how people get them out again. They'll, they'll have a little cord that you pull on. But at the same time, the, you, know, the, it, it, you have to get used to them. You have to be willing to do the work basically to to make them work uh they don't just make the world louder uh because if you did that you know if you make amplifying sounds that you can't hear well doesn't doesn't help you uh and simply making the sounds that you can hear well so loud that you can't hear anything else doesn't help you either so they they they're very precise instruments there's also increasingly and there will be in coming years uh hearing aids are going to get cheaper you'll be able to buy them uh, in a less complicated way than you can buy them now and they're also any number of devices. I have a pair of headphones made by Bose called Hearphones. Uh, they have the same processor that hearing aids do, but they uh, they they the speakers are better. Uh, they have uh, they because they're bigger, uh, and because they're they sit on the outside of my ear rather than hidden away inside of them. Uh, they use a more robust uh, version of uh, Bluetooth. So they're they're amazing. And in addition to making, uh, bringing up the sound levels of things that I can't hear, I can also bring down the sound levels of things that I don't hear. They're both noise canceling and noise enhancing. So 
they work uh, they work incredibly well. Uh, the only downside is that if you've got them on, people know that you have them on, and for many people, that's a big problem. And so there's certainly a certain amount of stigma to get over here. But you're saying that the 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 technology itself is going to get a little bit cheaper over the coming decades, perhaps more customizable as well. How does that change the game in terms of accessibility for this technology? Is this something that is going to change people's lives? Uh, I, yes, it will. I think, you know, uh, for people whose resistance to hearing aids is the fact that they're expensive, you know, it could be $3,000, $4,000, an ear not covered by insurance. That's a, a huge, there's a, it's a vastly underserved uh, population of people who have hearing loss but, but, but cannot afford uh, hearing aids. So as hearing aids become available over the counter, as uh, less expensive alternatives become available, especially for people with, with mild to moderate hearing loss, uh, all that should change. And it's, it's important to change it because, you know, one thing, the people who uh, have suffer, suffered hearing loss tend to suffer a, full, a whole range of uh, medical uh, issues unrelated to hearing or seemingly unrelated to hearing. Uh, people with hearing loss uh, are more likely to have medical problems of all kinds. Their life expectancy is less. Uh, people who can't hear uh, tend, are more likely to be su- to suffer from dementia. They're more likely to suffer the kind of social isola- isolation that makes old age uh, unpleasant, to say the least, uh, for many older people. I have uh, an acquaintance who uh, is l- older, uh, and at parties, he, people just assume that he's a, a, a cranky, mean old man because at a at a social gathering, he just kind of sits and stares. Uh, and I realize that it's it's not his personality, or it's not only his personality, but he can't hear, and and uh, he's too stubborn to to get hearing aids. Uh, so when he he's sitting there, he, <laughs> it's just that he, it's just that he can't hear what anybody is saying. Uh, it's not. It's not good. For, it's not good for him. It's not good for his health. Uh, it's not good for his sense of well-being. Uh, he has become increasingly isolated as he as he has become less able to hear what's going on around him. Another emerging technology is the medical interventions themselves. Uh, one in particular is the cochlear implants, and we've seen. I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of YouTube videos out now of people that had been deaf or severely hearing impaired, hearing certain things for the very first time and just lighting up. Tell us a little bit about what sorts of surgeries and medical interventions are on the horizon and how promising they are. Cochlear implants are one of the the most remarkable uh, surgical interventions that uh, involving a sense that have, have anybody has ever come up with, and, and what it what a cochlear implant is is it it's a, a an electrode that is is inserted into this tiny tiny little innermost part of the inner ear, uh, and then it uh, bypasses the the sensory cells of the inner ear and bypasses the little bones in the middle ear bypasses the eardrum, and takes uh, sounds from the outside world, converts them into electrical signals, and passes them directly to the auditory nerve and into the brain. Uh, I've seen those videos, too, The video, and, and they've brought tears to my eyes when you see a, a, a one-year-old child who's hearing sound for the first time. Uh, but the the videos are, are can be misleading and mostly are misleading. Turning on a, a cochlear implant for someone who's who's just received one is not like switching on ears, full hearing, un, unimpaired hearing in a in a in a person whose hearing is unimpaired. It's a signal. It's sound, but it's very distorted. It's a very simple stripped uh, signal. 
the people who receive cochlear implants have to learn. They have to work at it. They have to learn. And there's a limit to how far they can go into what they can hear. It's a, it can be life transforming for somebody uh, who can't hear, uh, but it's not. I think what most uh, most uh, most of us imagine that it is just like turning flick, flicking on the switch and suddenly uh, you can hear everything. Hmm. So uh, still certainly a long way for all of this technology to go. Uh, we're going to dig more into it in just a second, but want to remind our listeners one last time that this is KCBS in depth. Today, we are going in-depth into the ear to try to understand what this noisy, noisy world we've made is doing to one of our very most important senses. Our guide on this auricular journey is David Owen. His new book is Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. And while we're on the subject of emerging science, I think that one point of emerging science that many of us are waiting for, myself included, is for the magical cure for uh, tinnitus or tinnitus to come out. I uh, I have had tinnitus or tinnitus uh, for as long as I can remember. It used to drive me crazy. I've gotten a little bit more zen about it in uh, over the last decade or so. But uh, the ringing in their ears that's constant doesn't go away. It really is an affliction for a lot of people out there. And it feels like the sort of thing that there should be a cure for, but there just there just isn't. Is there, is there any hope on the horizon? Uh, there is hope. I have it too. And uh, the unfortunately, there's no known cure in this. You know, in the sense of a, a pill or a, or a procedure that, you could, that would simply make it go away. The treatment is what you've done. It's what I've done. Is is basically getting used to it and trying to ignore it, getting better at ignoring it. Some people often, when they when they first notice it, they're worried that it's. Uh, a sign of something much worse, that they're, they're losing their hearing or they have a brain tumor or they're going crazy. And so they'll go to a doctor and, it, and once the doctor has established that it's not any of those things happening, then they are comforted to the point where they can begin you know, learning to, to live with it. One of the very worst things for tinnitus I've learned is writing about it because I had gotten pretty good at not thinking about mine, but when you're writing about it, you're thinking about it all the time. And so, yeah, I was actually I, I was going to bring that up with you because <laughs> reading your book <laughs> really brought right. it to the foreground. It, it's, it's hard to ignore. It's been hard to ignore for the last couple of days. I was talking to some audiologists who work with veterans, and incidentally, the the number one and number two service-related health claims made by American military veterans are tinnitus and hearing loss. And it makes sense that the all the the gunfire and explosions and blasts that they're exposed to, uh, and then just the 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 sound level of military life. Uh, one of the very loudest uh, workplaces on earth uh, is an aircraft carrier. You can deafen yourself simply by sleeping on an aircraft carrier. Uh, soldiers in, in in, in military camps, they, they hear generators, they hear loud equipment, they hear big big machines. In addition to in, in addition to gunfire, and all those all those things uh, individually and cumulatively have effects on their hearing. Um, so it's um uh, it's a it's a big problem. Niacin is what I was prescribed when I told my doctor that I had this, and it did precisely nothing. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag out there. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I want to turn to an article that you wrote for The New Yorker earlier this year. It has a very provocative title. The title is, Is Noise Pollution the Next Big Public Health Crisis? And I think for a lot of people, they would be surprised to hear that title because many of us, as we've kind of been hinting out throughout this conversation, don't associate hearing or noise with anything all that serious. So tell us why it might be a lot more serious than we would expect. 
Well, it's, it's the kind of things that this French group discovered, which is the, or, or has documented the correlations between uh, exposure to loud sound and all kinds of, of, of health consequences. So it's not just loss of hearing, which is in, incredibly serious on its own, uh, but uh, but increases in medical issues of all kinds. The people who have uh, who are exposed to sound have trouble concentrating. They can't concentrate at work. Uh, they can't concentrate in school. They have trouble sleeping, and all these factors have other consequences. And so it's like a, it's it's a chain reaction of uh, of uh, not only the direct causes, not only the the direct results of the exposure, but also the 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 sort of follow on consequences. There was a, a study in New York in the 1970s. There was a, uh, an elementary school way uptown in, in Inwood, up in the northernmost part of Manhattan. And the school building was about uh, 200 feet from an elevated rail track. And, and it was discovered that children who were in classrooms on the, um, uh, on the side of the building closest to the, to the train were a year behind in reading, behind kids on the quieter side of the, of the school building. And what happened was every, every four or five minutes, a train would come by. The teacher would have to stop teaching for 30 seconds until the train had gone away. And then she would have to regain the, the attention of her students and start again. And this kind of uh, stop and start learning, teaching, not surprisingly, is not very effective. And what they, they discovered after they had taken steps to reduce the, uh, the sound impact of, of the train by putting you know, uh, b- b- rubber pads between the rails and the ties, by uh, installing acoustic tiles inside the classrooms, by closing some windows and making it possible to close the windows, uh, they, that the, the difference, the gap, the learning gap between the two sides of the building went away. Uh, these are problems that it, not necessarily at that level, but at, at all levels uh, exist. It, you know, the, the modern workplace is very often, it's an open, big open space where everybody sits next to everybody else and therefore can overhear everybody else. And there's the sound of the keyboard next to you and the sound of the person next to you talking on the phone. Uh, and all, all those, uh, the, all that sound going on is uh, interfering with your ability to do with whatever you're supposed to be doing. So we know that these problems are out there. We know that the world is turning into a very noisy place. We know that it's having these effects on our health. Uh, and we only have a minute or so left. But if, if you could, I mean, what can be done about all this? There's a, a pretty big example here in the Bay Area of a big noise complaint. Uh, people living south of the San Francisco airport uh, on the peninsula, they've been complaining for years about the flight traffic in their area. But the flip side of that is we do live in a modern world. People do need to fly on planes. How do we have a world that can take a take a bite out of some of this noise pollution but still live the modern life that we want to live uh, no it's tough and it's that's exactly the problem we like all these the these loud uh, elements of our of our lives that make us miserable on the one hand and, and that are great conveniences on another I think at the, the the probably most of the direct solutions are at the personal level you can protect your ears you can uh, get lay in a supply of good uh, earplugs and, and uh, I have some uh, these I have in many pairs of so-called musicians earplugs which are they're different from like little foam earplugs in that they take all the frequencies down basically by the same amount rather than just filtering out the high frequencies. Uh, and I keep them with me all the time, and I have others on my desk, uh, and I think we have to kind of take charge of our own ears in, in the hope of protecting them. 
All right. Well, a lot of work to be done out there. Uh, a great book for anybody who wants to understand their ears better and uh, understand what we're up against. It will make you think about your tinnitus a little bit more, but it'll also probably uh, encourage you to be a little bit more careful, which you'll be glad about later. Uh, we've been talking to David Owen, and the book is Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. David Owen, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. I want to give a special thanks to Radio.com station Hot 93.7 out of Hartford, Connecticut for hosting this interview. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. We'll see you next time. Listening to KCBS in depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit KCBSRadio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.